The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, the drug war is failing, but the human spirit is rising. The interrevolution in Colombia and what it means for us. Meet Latin American correspondent Anastasia Maloney and learn all about it. We know that most of the cocaine that hits the streets of America comes from Colombia. And nothing has stopped the drug trade, because nothing has yet stopped us from using. But now let's look at the drug trade from the other side. What impact has the trade, the war on drugs, and a decades-old civil war had on Colombia? on Central America and Mexico? How is the impact showing up at our borders? And what signs of interrevolution shine through? Anastasia Maloney, a British-born correspondent for the Thomson Reuters Foundation, has been covering the violence, the human rights violations, and the astounding inspirational stories of some amazing Colombians from her base in Bogota. She'll share stories of forgiveness and healing, resilience and courage, men confronting machismo, and women creating an inner revolution in the face of a culture of violence that has lasted for decades. Meet this inspiring journalist who tells her own story and theirs, and see how their stories relate to us. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome everybody. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you today, and I'm so happy that Anastasia Maloney is joining us. You know, there are so many aspects of this story. It's complicated. She could be on our show, you know, for three days, uh, which she, she won't, she won't. But um, she has so much to tell us. There's a lot of history about the war on drugs, what's going on in Colombia, but there's, what's so astounding is how much this really relates to us, how much our policies have impacted that, and how similar, in a way, the struggles that the Colombians are having are to our own. I mean, our own struggles to have an inner revolution for more oneness, accountability, and mutual support. So this is another one of those stories where I, uh, I feel sort of embarrassed, like, if they can do it, why can't I? You know what I mean? What's my problem? If they can forgive, why can't I? So I really hope that you uh, listen to this story and you feel inspired, and those of you who feel embarrassed, oh, well, let's throw out the embarrassment and just go with the inspiration. <laughs> but before we introduce this lovely woman... Uh, who has one of those very intellectual British accents that we love so much that always makes people sound more intelligent than we are, even if they're not. Um, <laughs> we would love to have James give us the news of the inner revolution. Very good. First item, in a society run to a large extent by the dollar, change often comes because of financial pressures, like the tobacco companies suddenly becoming confronted with expensive lawsuits. Is a new era starting in the fight for climate action? Here's a story from the New York Times, dated November the 5th. Exxon Mobil under investigation in New York over climate statements. The New York Attorney General has begun a sweeping investigation of Exxon Mobil to determine whether the company lied to the public about the risks of climate change or to investors about how those risks might hurt the oil business. Attorney General Eric Schneiderman issued a subpoena Wednesday evening to Exxon Mobil 
demanding extensive financial records, emails, and other documents. The focus includes the company's activities dating to the late 1970s, including a period of at least a decade when ExxonMobil funded groups that sought to undermine climate science. The ExxonMobil investigation might expand further to encompass other oil companies, and Mr. Schneiderman's decision to scrutinize the fossil fuel companies may well open a sweeping new legal front in the battle over climate change. To date, lawsuits trying to hold fossil fuel companies accountable for the damage they're causing to the climate have been failing in the courts, but most of these have been pursued by private plaintiffs. Attorneys general for other states could join in Mr. Schneiderman's efforts, bringing far greater investigative and legal resources to bear on the issue. Some experts see the potential for a legal assault on fossil fuel companies similar to the lawsuits against the tobacco companies in recent decades, costing those companies tens of billions of dollars in penalties. The people with knowledge of the New York case also said on Thursday that in a separate inquiry, Peabody Energy, the nation's largest coal producer, had been under investigation by the Attorney General for two years over whether it properly disclosed financial risks related to climate change. Now, this is hysterical, I think, because one of the things that they're trying to do is they're saying that the investors were misled because they thought this was a better deal than it was. And uh, so I think that's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, the rest of us are worrying about having a planet and breathing and, uh, you know, climate change. And there, and, but, but whatever it takes, you know, and this was so true of the tobacco industry, they just barefaced lied about what they knew and when, and that's all come out. And I think it's just so fantastic because when people don't hold themselves accountable, we have to hold them accountable. We have to hold ourselves accountable, but we have to hold them accountable too. So this is a very potentially powerful development. Very good. Our second story shows a real heightening of awareness about racism since blacks and other star- others started protesting the disproportionate use of force by police against black people. And this comes from the Associated Press, Thursday, November the 5th. Berkeley High students walk out over racist post. At least 2,000 of Berkeley High, schools, high School students walked out of class Thursday, November the 5th, in protest of a racist message left on a computer screen a day earlier district officials said. The message referred to the Ku Klux Klan using derogatory language related to African Americans and threatening a public lynching on December 9th. An estimated 2,000 of the school's 3,000 students had left school grounds to participate in a march, which moved to the University of California Berkeley campus late Thursday morning. We really understand the students' pain, their anguish, and their fear, and are doing everything we can to work with Berkeley, Berkeley police and other agencies to figure out what happened. This from the uh, district spokesperson, Mark Copeland. Our students are hurting tremendously. They're weeping. They're crying. The threat was the third racist incident at the school in the last year. In December, over winter break, a noose made from string was found hanging from a tree on the campus. In the spring, the yearbook was altered just prior to printing, identifying an academy within the high school that serves primarily students of color as, quote, trash collectors of tomorrow, unquote, the newspaper reported. Isn't that astounding? But what is so fabulous about this story is the consciousness. I don't remember there being that much activism around racism. It's really been since Ferguson and the killing of that black uh, unarmed kid 
um, and by the police that there's been so much more awareness. It's not like the problem didn't exist, but more and more awareness and more and more people are feeling empowered. In fact, there's a similar thing going on at the University of Missouri. There were some stories this week about changes. The I think uh, the president of the school had to resign because of racism. People are becoming activated. You know, there's nothing like empowerment to inspire other people. So when you see people going out there and doing something, it really seems to get other people activated to do something too. So I think that the courage of people in fighting back really helps to feed the inner revolution where we all start fighting for oneness which is, of course, against racism is one of the many ways of fighting for oneness, for accountability and for mutual support. So I think that we're seeing some horrible things these days, but there's so much more awareness and willingness to take action than there has been for a very long time. And now the next item is from Todd, the assistant producer of this show. And this is from McLean's Magazine, November the 9th. White evangelical Protestants are the group least likely to believe in climate change. So in America, Catherine Hayhoe is setting out to change that. Of all U.S. religious groups, white evangelical Protestants are least likely to believe in human-caused planetary warming. Only 11% accept the idea, compared to 46% of the broader U.S. population. Yet, no movement punches further above its political weight, bringing cash and votes to Republicans who voice their doubts and fears in Washington. If you belong to the 97% of climate scientists who regard global warming as real, man-made, and potentially catastrophic, this deep fracture in U.S. politics is an enormous problem. Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist who is also an evangelical and married to, to an evangelical minister, is making headway with this population. In her talks, she cites scientific facts that establish that human-caused climate change is real. Then she links Christian values to a call for action, stating that our values demand we be on the forefront of this issue. That's what we as Christians are called to do. It's an idea that sustains her as surely as it wins over her audiences, because Hayhoe's venture to the front lines of America's climate change war has been a scarring one. She has been assailed by right-wing media, threatened by online trolls, and snubbed by leaders of her own university, Texas Tech University. Nonetheless, she was energized anew last year when Time Magazine named her to its list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Later this month, she'll appear at the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris on behalf of the Union of Concerned Scientists, a 46-year-old organization devoted to promoting a healthier, safer planet. Still, the work that sets Heiko apart happens at the grassroots, talks to church groups, and consultations with conservation organizations throughout the U.S. and Canada. Catherine appeared on our show last September, and now I invite Beth to make her comment. Well, I think it was September 3rd, wasn't it? Did yeah, I put September that date? Okay. Catherine is an amazing, amazing woman. I mean, here she is, voted one of the top 100 most influential people in the world, and she is out there talking to people and putting herself on the line uh, I so admire her, and we did a show called Love and Climate Action, I think it was called, because she's so loving and so patient, and she's really approaching the whole, the whole climate issue from a love perspective, from a religious perspective, like God has given us this earth, and it's our job to take care of it. 
and it's just lovely. But what I um, so admire about her is that she doesn't just preach to the choir. She's willing to go out there and talk to the people who don't agree with her. And I, I keep thinking, how can I do that? How can I do that? How can I do that? You know, I hope our audience is made up of people who love us, but I also hope that our audience is passing on our uh, podcast to people who may not agree, but who just, you know, you never can tell when somebody might hear something that might spark a shift in their thinking, and we're always open to dialogue. So I just wanted to say that, and also I just have to have one quick piece of news that I just read on the way to this interview, which is President Barack Obama is on the cover of Out Magazine. Uh, the new um, Out 100 2015 issues. And they are saying this is an LGBT magazine. This is the first time. This is history. And they talk about how much the Obama administration has done for LGBT rights, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And um, it's just incredible. And one of the things that's in this article, I just want to read one little thing which is how uh, Obama talks about how he knows what it's like to be an outsider, you know, because he was a a black kid and uh, he was often not with other uh, people of color. And he knows what it's like to be an outsider and he has a lot of feelings for, for that. And isn't that oneness again? You know, one of the saddest things that we have is that if you belong to a minority group and you discriminate from against others, you're not learning the lesson of your own experience about how painful it is when others don't treat us like we're, in, you know, like we're all part of the oneness. So I just had to tell you that because that just came in. Oh my God, there's so much news. I want to quickly introduce you to our fabulous guest, who is Anastasia Maloney. Anastasia is in Bogota, on the other side of the world. Hello, Anastasia. Hello, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So you're going to be filling us in on some incredible news of the inner revolution south of the border, way south of the border. But before we ask you about all of that, I have to ask you to tell us about the name Anastasia Maloney, what that means, <laughs> where did you get that name, and what that, how that impacted you. You'll see what I mean in a minute. So, Anastasia, tell everybody about your name. Uh, so, my name, Anastasia, comes from my uh, Russian mother. Uh, she immigrated to uh, Britain, uh, settled in London to uh, escape communism, and she uh, didn't want to live there anymore. And so, she came to uh, Britain as an immigrant. I'm a daughter of an immigrant. Um, and she met my father. Uh, while she was teaching uh, Russian at a local university there. And my father uh, has Irish roots. His father was Irish. So uh, Maloney is a typically Irish surname. So uh, that's where my name comes from, the Russian and Irish uh, heritage of both my parents. Right, living in London. <laughs> that's Which right, correct. Living neither. in London. <laughs> and, yeah. and now in Bogota. And I think there's something important about that background. I mean, how, how do you think that your background impacted your caring and your great interest in humanitarian issues? 
Well, I think it, a lot of that came from my uh, mother. Um, I think that, you know, being an immigrant, she was always a foreigner in London. Um, she also was very... Um, she was. She always never forget that she was Russian as well. So I, I, I grew up in a very uh, Russian household. Uh, I was spoken to in Russian by my mother. I was always I, there. Was always a real sense of otherness and an awareness of otherness in my. Uh, oh, you too. Uh, <laughs> yes, there was. A lot you of like that Barack Obama? Was, we were just talking <laughs> about that. Yes, I know. It was, uh, I think that she, she never, we never really talked about it at home, but it was obviously, uh, it was very obvious that I grew up in a house that wasn't English, that wasn't particularly British, and so there, and there were always lots of people passing through the house, it was an open door house, there was always lots of visitors and people from uh, the rest of Eastern Europe, so I always felt that it was a international perspective, and I think that, uh, that sort of um, inspired my interest to to travel and to get to know other cultures and to have an empathy uh, with other people. That is fantastic. Well, I can't believe that it's time for our first commercial break, but it evidently it is. So um, with that, we're um, we're going to go on on to a break, and when we come back, we want Anastasia to tell us why she's in Colombia. And what is happening there and how it's relevant to us. So stick around because this is a fascinating story. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. Be part of the inner revolution sweeping the planet. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green on the Voice America Variety Channel. And now, also enjoy Beth's channel, Inner Revolutionary TV, on voiceamerica.tv. See inspiring videos about our guests and the inner revolution. Hear commentaries that will help clarify our time. And watch interviews of people who will matter to you. Think outside the box. Watch Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
Now, back to Interrevolutionary Radio. Welcome back to Interrevolutionary Radio. This is your host, Beth Green, my co-host, James Maynard, and we are interviewing Anastasia Maloney, who is a fascinating woman with a fascinating job, who's living a fascinating life, which is very relevant to us. So, Anastasia, how did you get, okay, the Russian-Irish woman born in London, how did you get to Colombia? And that's in South America. We don't mean Columbia, the university in New York. <laughs> uh, so I had no plans at all to ever come to uh, Bogota, to Colombia. Um, but I did have plans to um, see the world and have a bit of an adventure. That was always part of my plan. But Colombia, I didn't really choose Colombia. I always think that sort of Colombia chose me instead. Uh, <laughs> basically, I'd... Been, I'd um, I was in London as a, a secondary school teacher. I, I taught history in state schools uh, in London. And by my seventh year of teaching, I had got frustrated uh, and I wanted to um, move on. I got a bit bored of London as well. I wanted Wait, to... When you said you were frustrated, what were you frustrated by? Well, I was frustrated by a lot of the government policy and government uh, mandates that were put um, on teachers and teachers' unions and what we had to teach kids. I felt that um, teachers were basically the, the, the bottom of society. I didn't think that we were valued or paid enough. And I think that kind of weighed me down uh, quite mm. a lot. I was always a very romantic uh, idealist. And uh, <laughs> teaching kids uh, is a very, very hard and difficult um, thing to do. And, you know, my, te- my heroes are still teachers. But uh, I, I kind of turn my back on the... Uh, the profession, and I thought that I would uh, do different things. So um, one day I was looking at adverts in um, a paper advertising for job teaching jobs abroad, and I came across uh, Colombia. I mean, if, if in that moment I'd come across maybe Argentina or somewhere else or somewhere else in Africa, I probably would have gone there. Anyway, I applied for the job, and I, I, I got it, and I came to uh, Bogota in 2002, Firstly, as a teacher, I, I taught in an international uh, school, uh, teaching history in English to basically Colombian uh, students in a private school. And that's how I first came to Colombia, as, as a teacher. So then how did you become a journalist and go out in the jungles? Well, I uh, then realized, actually, I had got bored with teaching as such. And uh, I then decided that I really needed a change. Um, but I wanted to have the flexibility and be independent, and I liked the freelance life. I didn't want to hear the bell anymore and uh, be sort of – I didn't want my life and my day to be guided by that, the school bell anymore. So I mm-hmm. gave the whole thing up, and I thought, well, what do I know about? I know about teaching, and I know about teachers, and I know their language and what they think and how they feel. So I started writing about education. Oh. And then, of course – uh, I was in a very uh, interesting uh, country. I didn't really know much about it at all when I first landed. And then I decided to uh, start writing about more about the politics and society in Colombia. I got some uh, lucky breaks uh, as a freelancer uh, journalist before. And then I got this full-time job with the Reuters Foundation. I, and so I've been a journalist probably now in Colombia about uh, eight seven, eight years, and I've been living here now for 12. Now, tell us about the war on drugs, because, of course, we can't talk about Colombia without at least starting with that. 
Yes. Yeah, so, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, a lot of the um, cocaine that ends up uh, in the streets of the U.S. Uh, comes through Colombia via Mexico. And um, Colombia uh, is one of the, still the main cocaine producers in the world. Um, and the raw ingredient for cocaine, which is the coca plant, is grown in the jungles in Colombia. And it's also grown in Bolivia and Peru. Um, now, in the 1980s, Colombia became very famous uh, because of Pablo Escobar, who was the uh, first major cocaine uh, drug lord. Uh, he uh, had the biggest cocaine cartel in the world at that time. And um, he's, he's dead now, but uh, he was uh, the one that everyone was trying to get. And he basically controlled um, all the cocaine production and distribution networks um, in the world. And so that's uh, why many people still, when they think of Colombia, they think of that. That was in the 1980s. Things have moved on since then. And unfortunately, what you're seeing now in Mexico is the result of that because the U.S. and Colombians have been working for a long time at two governments trying to um, go after the drug cartels in Colombia and eradicate uh, coca production in Colombia. And that's basically been the U.S. involvement in Colombia for many decades now through a lot of um, aid, uh, military aid and uh, money to try and go after the cartels and also other groups involved in the drug trade. So what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, if you talk to the Colombian government and uh, the U.S. government, they say actually a lot went right. Uh, mm -hmm. They will say that uh, the major uh, cocaine cartels that were in Colombia during the 1980s and 1990s uh, have disappeared, and that's absolutely true. Um, however, when they um, uh, disappeared and when they were uh, eradicated to a certain extent, uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the business then went to uh, Mexico. So a lot of people say that in, in fact what it's called is called a balloon effect, where you squeeze air in one area, it's just going to pop up in another one. That's what mm -hmm. policymakers say. It just simply doesn't work because if you don't actually deal with the demand, uh, that means you know people in uh, Europe and the U.S. Uh, wanting cocaine, you're never actually going to uh, deal with uh, the problem. So for the Colombians, they were always saying, we're just catering to the demand that's not in our backyard, but elsewhere. And um, they would say they've actually had a lot of success against the major uh, drug cartels. But now uh, the, the uh, cocaine is still grown. I mean, the coca plant is still grown in Colombia, but that the cartel that controls its distribution has moved to Mexico. Is that right, what you're yeah. saying? So that's right, yes. So um, a lot of the um, – there's, there's massive relationships between the Mexican cartels and uh, the Colombian uh, groups involved in the cocaine trade. Uh, they are, it's, um, it's a huge business. Uh, there's many, many links with both sides. Uh, basically, what happened is that when the uh, U.S. and the Colombian government started to crack down on the cocaine cartels, it was getting harder and harder for the Colombian co uh, cartels to distribute distribute their cocaine to the United States. So uh, it was too risky. So the Mexicans took over the risk business, if you like, of that drug trade. Mm -hmm. And um, they uh, control a lot more of uh, how it gets to the United States. 
and a lot of the, the, the violence and the displacement that you see of people being having to flee their homes in Mexico, uh, just like what happened in Colombia, is a direct cause of this uh, war on drugs. And people say that, you know, despite decades of this big policy, basically it fluctuates, but you know, the amount of cocaine on the streets doesn't really change and the price doesn't really change. It goes up and down, but basically, you know, if the demand is there, the supply will be there. Is this also impacting the immigration of uh, Central Americans as well as Mexicans? Absolutely. There's a huge connection because uh, a lot of the Mexican uh, uh, cartels realized that the weak spot in Latin America was Central America. Uh, weak governance, um, countries still recovering from civil wars, uh, they realized that they could actually use Central America, um, particularly I'm talking about Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, as sort of transit points for their uh, drugs. And there's huge now uh, relationships and connections between organized crime in both Central America and Mexico. And a lot of people in Central America um, have to either displace and move around in their own country to a safer neighborhood, or they are making that journey overland to the United States. And in 2014, we saw all those children uh, turn up at the borders, uh, the U.S. border in um, Texas, uh, hoping to get uh, asylum. And they were claiming asylum because they were saying it was simply too dangerous for them to be in the countries because of the gang violence and because of the gangs that control these neighborhoods. You know, it's such a sad story, isn't it, Anastasia? Because I don't think that most Americans have a clue about this. And, uh, you know, they get all revved up by our politicians who blame the immigrants for everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that it's like all of a sudden all these people show up at the border. We don't know why. They just do, right? <laughs> and what are we going to do? How, how many, how can we send them back? And we don't even realize and recognize that the war on drugs has had such an impact on Mexico, on Central America, and how much it is showing up at our doors, and that we can't just ignore it, that we have some, we need to look inside the problem, understand what the problems are, and try to help people to have a, a safer world to live in. So I'm so glad that you've had an opportunity to educate so many of us on something which is critical for our understanding that's even showing up right now in our in our elections. Now we know that there's other violence that has been going on in Colombia and we don't, we, I mean we could be on for hours talking about the history of the civil war in Colombia. But can you just kind of summarize all the different kinds of violence that the Colombians have participated in and have to endure so that when you tell us these super inspirational stories, people get a, have a context of what these people have gone through and are facing. So um, the history, the recent history of Colombia is uh, a violent one, and it really goes back to, you can say, the 1940s when the conservative and liberal political parties uh, fought against each other. Then, in 1964, is the big date in Colombian history when um, the, a small peasant movement uh, started to come together to fight for better land reform and equality and land redistribution. And there was a small group of farmers, poor farmers, who uh, won an important battle in 1964. And this then became what we know today as the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. 
and they have been the one of the constant uh, insurgent movements in Colombia. And in fact, the, they have been around now for 51 years, which makes them the longest-serving guerrilla insurgency in the world. And um, they grew uh, through the 80s and 1990s, partly also funded by the drug trade. They're also involved in, in that, in drug trafficking. And um, they now are in a peace process with the Colombian government in Havana, uh, Cuba, which I'll talk about more. But one of the big groups there, and that's caused a lot of the violence in Colombia, is the FARC uh, guerrilla group. Then, in response to the FARC guerrilla group, um, uh, landowners uh, who were fed up with the FARC enroaching on their land and causing problems, they got together and they formed their own kind of militia, what's called the paramilitaries, to defend themselves against the FARC. And what is the common denominator in all these groups that get set up is the lack of state control and a lack of state presence in rural and jungle areas of Colombia. That's been a, a constant through its history, where people have decided, look, if the government's not going to protect me, then I'm going to use my own gun and protect myself. And the paramilitaries grew into uh, a huge force, which was partly funded by landowners, explicitly sometimes funded by politicians. Uh, huge links with the Colombian uh, political elite and business elite, and they uh, were responsible for huge human rights, uh, mass uh, human rights abuses throughout their history. So uh, there's these two big groups, the FARC, as I said before, the left-wing guerrilla group, then the right-wing paramilitaries. They were fighting against each other. And then, of course, you had the government, troops, and the military, which was very much backed by the U.S. government with billions and billions of dollars of US aid and also military equipment and military intelligence. So that's um, the brief history of the violence. So there's been political violence from the 1940s, violence from the FARC, violence from the paramilitaries, and also by uh, military, the state military troops as well. And as you mentioned, there have been huge, just to give a very quick idea of the numbers of Colombians who have been killed or disappeared in all this violence. Yes, so there's estimates uh, of about 220,000 civilians killed since uh, 1964. And since 1985, according to official government figures, there's almost 7 million people displaced. That means 7 million people within, within Colombia, Colombians, having to move from one area to another, literally because they fear for their lives. Uh, and that gives... Colombia, one of the one of the highest numbers of displaced population uh, in the world, and they often went from rural areas, their their homes in the countryside, and they often fled to the big cities. So, for example, in Bogota, there's huge uh, shanty towns where full of just displaced people who have been uh, who have been forced to flee because of the conflict and because of the violence, and that still goes on. And then there's the people who have disappeared. Right. There's the people that disappeared. Uh, there are different estimates, but it's between 30,000 and 50,000 people who have gone missing and no one knows the whereabouts. Some are, I mean, can you, you know, I'm asking, I'm talking to my audience right now. Just think about it. I think about what your life would be like if you had that situation happening, in your, you know, in your country. And uh, I, I, I mean, some people have, you know, are living in very, very violent circumstances. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of violence in our country, too. But listen to this and think about it. And you think about the lack of drug treatment in the U.S. 
and how we've then taken this problem and tried to throw people in prison as though that is going to solve anything, and nothing ever changes. And we're all kind of complicit in this, and we have got to be thinking about other ways of curbing our need for drugs. And this is, we're just talking about cocaine. I mean, there's heroin. There are so many different ways that we need to start taking accountability for our mental, emotional, and physical state. And look at the impact it has. Well, when we come back from our next break, we want Anastasia to just start making us feel happier (laughs) or better because she's going to tell us about some incredible things that are happening in Colombia with the women, with the men, and with a nation that has faced this kind of wrenching of the social fabric. But if somehow the human spirit is rising and it's so inspirational. So stick around. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Welcome back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Today, uh, we are interviewing Anastasia Maloney, who is a correspondent in Bogota for South America and Latin America for the Thomas Reuters Foundation. And she's very deeply involved in humanitarian issues uh, and, oh, my God, all the human rights violations. But she has been giving us this incredible history about what's been going on in Colombia and what it has to do with us. And I just want to say this because we're coming into our last segment, and, and Anastasia is now going to give us this inspiring story about people, what they're doing, they're so amazing. But I think she's amazing, too, because we heard a little bit about her story, too. She was a teacher in England, and she wanted an adventure. She grew up in a multicultural background, and she just went for it and went to Colombia, and she ended up having a life that I don't know if she would have chosen it if she had actually known what she was getting into. (laughs) But, But this woman has gone to the jungle where the... You know, the the militias are, and 
uh, interviewed people and kind of, you know, not to be in the thick of it is like she has a gun or anything like that. But isn't it inspiring just to hear how people can do such exciting and, and important things with their lives? And if it weren't for what she did, we wouldn't have this great story today. So, Anastasia, I'd like you, you've given us some idea of the incredibly difficult conditions that people, the ordinary Colombians, are facing. And um, can you tell us some of these inspiring stories? The first story I want you to tell us about is the men, the macho men story, because that's how we discovered you. We read this story and said, oh, my God, who is this woman who interviewed these guys? We want to talk to her, and that's how this whole thing began. But tell us about this. Um, so as I've been writing uh, a lot about um, how the, the uh, conflict has affected people, a lot of women over the years have always told me, look, even if, there is a peace deal in Colombia, even if there wasn't the FARC, even if there wasn't the paramilitaries. Who, the main problem that we face would still exist. And I used to ask them, well, what is, what is that problem? They would say, you know, it's machismo. Uh, it's the way I'm treated by society, and it's the way I'm treated at home, and it's the way that men interact with me. And I'm talking really about domestic violence and sexual violence in the home. And that got me thinking that, you know, perhaps I'd been uh, focused on so much on the conflict and its impact that really the big problem that women faced was in their own homes. And then I was looking for stories about people who are trying to tackle uh, domestic violence head on because it's still this taboo subject. It's still the number one problem that women face of all social classes, but yet no one really talks about it in the way I think they should. And then I came mm. across this amazing group of men uh, who uh, basically run this organization in Bogota, and they said to me, look, you know, if men are the main culprits, the main perpetrators of violence against women, then we need to really start with men. We need to start with boys, and we need to question what they think is manhood. What is their masculinity? What is their concept of being a man in Colombia today? What does that mean? And once we talk about that, we can start then to change their behavior. So I was fascinated by this uh, group of men because I've been to so many conferences and so many workshops in Colombia where it was just women sitting around and talking about their problem. And I always felt that, you know, there was someone missing in the room. And the person <laughs> yeah. in the room is, you know, is, is, the, the, uh, is the male voice their experiences, yeah. and, um, you know, the young future generation, the boys, who are growing up in this culture. So I was very interested in this uh, NGO. It's called the Collective for Masculinities, and I wanted to uh, follow them and, and see their workshops and what they do, and also speak to the boys and the teenagers who have been part of this process and see how it changed their lives, and also then go back to their homes and see how their relationship with their mothers and their sisters had changed. Mm. And um, I think that I'm absolutely convinced more and more that the only way to combat violence against women is by changing the behavior of men and getting them to question what it means to be a man. And when I spoke to these young men, uh, they said to me at the beginning, you know, I had a huge ego. And I really did think that I was better than a woman. I really did think I was better than my sister. And I really did think it was okay for my mother to stay at home, uh, you know, be the, the sort of a second-class citizen, and whereas the boy would go out and seek his fortune in the world. That was the kind of the, the, the impression. 
And also a lot of the boys told me that they had never had a positive female role model. The, the, the role model in the house was always the downtrodden woman, the submissive mm. woman, and the one who was taking the beating. And they said mm. to me, how can I look at a woman in a different way than that? So there's a whole mm. cycle of what kids see at home, and that obviously affects how they're going to behave to their future girlfriends and their future uh, wives. So this workshop uh, goes into schools, also works in the army, uh, and uh, among other groups in society in Colombia, and starts to ask basic questions, like what does it mean to be a man? And what are you afraid of if you give up that power? And what power do you really think you have? So those are the questions, and it takes months and months and then the guys, the teenagers, who have uh, started to change a bit their perception of what it means to be a man, they then go back to the boys and tell them, look, it's okay, actually. The power that you imagine is an abstract one. Uh, you're actually going to be a happier person. That is, that, is the, that is what I found really interesting about this, is that they were able to convince men that if you change, you will actually be a better husband, uh, a better person, and you'll be happier. So uh, that's their, their message, and I think that's really important if Colombia is going to enter this, this post-conflict uh, age where the fighting is supposedly going to stop, then the real battle is in the violence in the homes. And I think that these kind of projects, being and focusing on men and teenage boys, is absolutely crucial uh, for the future of this country. Steve, that is so phenomenal, isn't it? Are you guys amazed out there who are listening? You know, we have a group called Inner Revolutionary Men here in, at the innerrevolution.org, which is my uh, organization, nonprofit. And uh, the men in our organization are doing the same thing. They're saying, you know, the ego, the male ego, the male domination, the male violence has never made us happy. You know, we're the ones who are actually also intimidated by other men. It's distorting us, and we want something better for ourselves and our kids. So it's just astounding to see this happening you know, somewhere else, and especially in a place where, I mean, there's real consequences. If you live in a violent society and you're walking around, well, you know, you live in a gang neighborhood and you say, peace, peace, brother, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, it's very hard to do it in an environment where there is such consequences for looking weak. Yes, that's exactly right. And when I used to speak, when I spoke to the, the boys who were to the teenagers who are part of this uh, process, they said to me that, you know, when they first started, their status was exactly what you've just been talking about. The status was, who is the biggest, who's the toughest, who's the strongest on the street? It's all about street credibility and the street uh, status that you have and also the position within a gang. So, you know, if you have a gun, obviously you have bigger status than someone who doesn't. And it's basically how much of your weight can you push around? How many yeah. people can you bully? How many people can you hurt? Uh, and that is how you were seen and judged and defined as a man. And he said, when I started to understand that, uh, this particular boy, this teenage boy who was uh, basically a gang member, he said to me that I realized that that wasn't making me happy. And it was making me very sad inside. And also, as a man, he couldn't talk to anyone about it. He couldn't admit anything about it because it was totally humiliating oh. for him to do so. So yeah. what I found really interesting were these groups of workshops run by peers, run by male teenagers, for male teenagers, is that they feel safe and comfortable talking in that space, in that classroom, or wherever that workshop's taking place. And they feel they won't be judged, or they won't lose whatever power they think that they have. And I think that was really crucial. And I don't necessarily think that women 
a group of women can do the same thing. I think it has to be from a teenage boy telling another one, this is how I feel and this is how I think you could change. I think yeah. that's why it's so, it's so powerful. It is, and it is so inner revolutionary, is that these men are changing themselves and changing the world. Now, give us a, some examples of these amazing Colombian women, because given what kind of lives they've led, you know, what do you see happening with the women? So, Colombia is just full of extraordinary, brave, wonderful women who have basically borne the brunt of this conflict. They are the widows that have been left behind. They are the mothers looking for their missing daughters and sons. Um, they are the people caring for landmine victims. Um, they are the ones left at home in rural areas. And they are the, the core, the structure of communities in Colombia, women. And women for a long time now, because the conflict's been going on for so many decades, have, this, have had this amazing capacity and ability to come together and support each other. So uh, there are many, many different groups that focus on different things. So, for example, there are many groups on uh, women who are searching for the missing. So they come together and they will literally go out into the countryside and look for graves and mass graves. They will, they will mm -hmm. dig and they will go to prisons and they will ask people, do you have any clues about where my missing daughter or my missing son is? And they will ask people who have been captured uh, who are maybe demobilized paramilitaries or captured FARC members, and they'll go to the prisons and they'll ask them, do you know anything about where so-and-so could be buried? And so these networks have grown over the years, and there are women who are dealing with, let's find the missing, and let's find the truth about what really happened. And then there's and, another... Uh, you, yeah, tell us, believe it or not, we're running out of time. Tell us a little bit about the women and the forgiveness. Yeah. So... Um, a lot of these groups have one central core theme is that we have to forgive uh, the perpetrators. We have to forgive the people who committed violence. If we don't do that, then we are going to uh, die inside. A lot of the women I've spoken to said that it's like a cancer, that the grief, the anger eats them alive. And they said that if they don't deal with that, they can't confront that and they can't reconcile. First of all, the reconciliation takes place within themselves. And then they can forgive the person who has committed uh, the crime or atrocity. And many women have actually confronted uh, the, the, the person who has raped that particular community. There are, there are ceremonies where child soldiers also meet the person who recruited them into child ranks. And so there's a lot of um, uh, talk and action into reconciliation today in Colombia. And a lot of that has been led by women's movements saying, we have to forgive. You have to forgive in yourself, you have to get over the guilt, the anger, and then you can start to heal. And then through that healing process, you have to forgive the person who committed the crime. And that is this uh, huge push for forgiveness and reconciliation, particularly in this context of the peace process, where people are saying, unless we forgive, actually, we won't have lasting peace. Well, this is exactly why we need an inner revolution here as well and everywhere. I mean, what you're saying, Anastasia, is so moving. These people are doing it. In fact, they they have gotten over their anger because otherwise they become perpetrators of and perpetuators of that same energy. And I'm so impressed and so grateful that you can share this with us. We are running out of time. I want James to kind of 
to tell us what we're going to do next week, and then I'll come back and wrap things up. Very good. Uh, coming up next week, elections. Can we break through the deception and meanness? What if Beth Green ran for president? Here, Christine Denton interviewed Beth about what we might all want to stand for. Elections are supposed to be a time when we come together to discuss our collective future. But is that what's happening now? In the U.S., we're going through the presidential primaries and seeing a lot of bickering, unsubstantiated claims, empty promises, and grandstanding. Some of us feel really passionate about a candidate. Some of us don't like any of them. But nobody can say that there's much real discussion going on. And many of us feel uncomfortable even with our own candidates because we don't see substantial debate or we distrust their forthrightness or wonder if they're just jockeying for votes. Imagine the oneness party has just nominated host Matt Green for president <laughs> with Beth running on a platform of universal human values. Christine Benton returns to our show to ask Beth about her presidential campaign. Expect Beth's special humor and integrity in a discussion of the challenges of our times. And tune in for some fresh perspectives, which may help you sort out your own. And now for a final word from Beth. Well, thank you so much, James. Well, I mean, it's a perfect segue because look what they're doing, and we need to be doing the same thing. We need to be looking within, and we need to be thinking very deeply about ourselves in this election period. I want to thank Anastasia Maloney so much for being with us, and we have invited her to become our Latin American in a revolutionary correspondent. <laughs> we have asked Anastasia to let us know when she bumps into stories of the inner revolution, to let us know when there are people that we should know about and when there are events that we should know about. And she said yes. Now, you haven't changed your mind, have you, Anastasia? No, no, no. I'm still going to let you know the extraordinary uh, people uh, in Colombia that are trying to... Uh, live in, in peace, and I'm going to keep you uh, updated with all these great stories coming from Colombia. So how do you like that, guys? We now have our interrevolutionary Latin American uh, correspondents. I can't thank you enough, Anastasia, for having made that journey from London to Bogota so that you could make that journey with us today. So thank you so much, everyone, and God bless. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.